from Kurtco Media. It was not about just getting from A to Z. It was about a full lifestyle immersion, what that car said of who you are, what you represented, and how you wanted the world to see. That was the voice of Matthew Haranik, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to another episode of Cars That Matter. And I am here with a friend as well as a guest. Not that guests can't be friends. My friend and guest is Matt Cranick. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. It's a pleasure to hear your voice and at least on the back end of this production, see your face. <laughs> That's right. We're all doing this virtually, of course, and it certainly put us in a bit of a problem-solving mindset over the last year, especially because the first time we met each other, Matt, was actually at a car show. But wait, it wasn't just any car show. As I recall, you and I met at the inaugural Chanty Concours that Richard Mille put on. And that was, of course, right outside of Paris. I'd have to say that was about the most opulent, over-the-top automotive event I have ever been to. Coming from you, that is quite a statement. I'll be honest with you, I was a reasonable virgin to that experience, and I couldn't have picked a better partner to pair up with for that. Not only for your car knowledge, but also your enthusiasm for the champagne kiosks that were everywhere. <laughs> first things first, Matt, you're absolutely right. The guy's got to have something to slake a thirst before going out onto that hot show field. Matt, it's funny, six degrees of separation and all that. I remember there was a museum on the grounds, an equestrian museum next to the stables where the grand dinner affair was held. I mean, this is no stables like I've ever seen. And in the museum was a little tiny engraving in one of the display cases, an Albrecht Durer St. George on horseback. And here's this guy looking at this engraving. Well, nobody looks at engravings, it turned out to be you. And I said, are you interested in those things? And of course you said, well, yes, one of my best friends is a curator at the Getty. I named her and it all kind of went from there. The crazy thing is, is not only did I have an interest in engravings and particularly Elbrecht Dürer when I was studying art history in university, but my wife just happens to be high school friends with this character, Stephanie, that we talked about at the Getty. So there was immediately, I think, that bond of, okay, we have similar likes and we know similar people. So maybe there's a potential for us to get along on this press junket, which is not always the case when you're on a press junket. You're normally with a bunch of people that you don't want to spend time with. <laughs> yes, indeed. We've all been to those. But it turns out we had some other things in common, too. I believe you were able to instruct the bartender at our hotel how to make a proper martini, not something that's typically done in France. So it was a particularly rewarding evening because I know we had some great drinks, too. There was a lot of things that were first for me on that trip. Well, first, having a hotel bartender that didn't know how to make a dry martini, that was first. But moreover, the layout and the concord of the cars and this car show and the elaborate display and this amazing platform and space that I'd only ever seen in James Bond before, like that was a James Bond location. I just thought it was incredible. And to navigate that with your knowledge and enthusiasm was really special for me. I was reasonably a greenhorn on that stuff. 
Clearly, you're underselling yourself, and you're certainly not a greenhorn when it comes to the grander, broader landscape of all things good. Because what I really didn't get a chance to do was introduce you in your full measure, Matt. You're a well-known traveler, explorer, eater, and drinker, as some might say, and really quite a well-known writer and journalist, been the men's style editor at Condé Nast Traveler, and you're the founder of the William Brown Project, WM, for those who want to see it in print, because it is indeed a magazine as well. Tell us about some of your broader endeavors and then we'll get into Cars That Matter. I was really interested in photography and then consequently our history when I went to university, but primarily as a photographer and realizing I had no illustration skills, I had no tactile skills, I was never going to be a mechanic, but I definitely, definitely had a point of view and the aesthetic point of view of things. And then I really loved photography. So I went to university and studied photography in Rochester at RIT, came to New York, was at Grunt Assistant who was cleaning toilets and sweeping studios and running out to pick up photographers dry cleaning. And I loved every minute of it. I just wanted to be around creators and I wanted to be around people that were just inspired by their craft. And that meant this immersion into the photo apprenticing assistant world that led to a photo career. And then as the digital landscape was changing, how images were made and the amount of people that suddenly became a part of that property of making imagery, I just was like, well, I thought the ideas were the most exciting part. Creating the content, as we call it now, was the most inspiring thing. Executing it was fine, but not as exciting as creating the story. So that's when I decided I had a little tiny spell in television at the Esquire Network. And then when legacy publishing was kind of dismantling and losing money and just losing its way, both my wife and I, Yolanda, who was a Condé Nast creative, decided to launch our own magazines, which some would say would be madness, but we thought it was the right thing to do. Tell us more about William Brown Project. So the William Brown Project started in 2008, then morphed into this very short-lived television show on the Esquire network called The Alternate Route, which is basically everything that I wanted to talk about and was in love with, which was cars, food, travel, gadgets, people, storytelling. And then when my wife was at Condé Nast Traveler, as a creative director, and my friend Pilar Guzman was the editor-in-chief, I was waiting for the show to pick up that didn't look so likely. And they said, you're twiddling your thumbs here. Why don't you become our men's editor, which would cover watches and luxury and cars. And I was like, twist my arm, I'm on. And then that was a really interesting time because that really became that moment where I felt like, yes, my ideas are being recognized. I have a support team in place that's going to publish these things and is going to give me the opportunity to basically do the thing which I always wanted to do, which was give my opinion about stuff. (laughs) That's a great position to be in. And that also led me to meeting terrifically like-minded people like yourself and navigating that whole world, traveling a lot and realizing I didn't have to schlep 60 pounds of camera equipment and I still had a voice and a point of view. And that was terrifically good fun for me. Speaking of publishing, we'll dive right into your most recent publication, which is something near and dear to our listeners' hearts. It's about cars, and it's a fantastic book called A Man and His Car. Congratulations on that one, Matt. I guess it just came out in September of 2020, and it's published by Artisan in New York. Beautiful, beautiful book. You talk about coffee table books, this is one of them. And yet, the form factor is such, it's a great landscape format, and it's small enough to actually hold and not break your back when you try to lift it. It's the perfect size car book. There was a lot of thought that went into that, which was, it mimicked the first book 
book that I did with Artisan, which was A Man and His Watch, which was basically the same storytelling, which was like, what are these emotional connections that men have with machines? Now, that could be a wristwatch and in this case, cars. But what were the stories that connected and distracted men for decades about these machines. And they didn't have to be the most expensive. They just had to be the most connected and the most thoughtful and the ones that told the best stories. So like Watch, I was seeing all these books that were these big monographs of expensive cars. And it was almost like pornography, like these glossy, almost unattainable things. And then I just thought, why aren't we telling the real car show stories or the backyard grease monkey stories or just the love affairs of what men had with cars, which were stories that I grew up with? I think a lot of us did. And you're right, Matt, the whole notion of something being too perfect, and certainly there's nothing wrong with a hundred point car. I've been accused of that. But the fact of the matter is it's really about the people and the connections that they make with those cars, to quote our character in the 40-year-old version, it's all about connection. But in this case, it's really, really true. And you seem to connect very well with those owners and put their cars into proper context. It's an incredibly fun book to read. But indeed, it is styled after your first book, The Man and His Watch. That's when I first saw your publishing effort. And I was hugely intrigued by it because it literally did go from soup to nuts. It went from Patek Philippe's to Pulsar's. It was a great book. It, again, came from a very selfish place. And that was my own watch story. And that was a very simple Datejust Rolex that my dad left to me when he passed away. And then as I was navigating the watch space editorially for the magazine, because that was a big part of the business of Condé Nast, I was going to Geneva and Basel. And besides dealing with all these kind of immortals in the watch world, I was dealing with mortals with great stories. And that could be a Casio and that could have been a Cartier watch left by a grandfather, or in my case, a very simple Rolex Datejust. And I just felt like that was the essence of watch culture for me in the storytelling tradition. And I thought that I hadn't seen that before. So I had said to Artisan, I really want to do a book about watches. And they were like, oh, no, that's absolutely bull crap. Like, we don't want to do a book about watches. That's a different world. And I said, no, 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 it's not a watch book. It's a story book. And that's when they kind of stepped back and pivoted and were like, that we could do. We can get behind a storybook. And that was really impressive to me for them as a publisher that was allowing me to take artistic license and what that was. And also with the watch book, like the car book, I wanted to show the patina and the age and the life that was evolving with these watches that people owned. Photographs weren't retouched. They were very simply photographed on black. And that was what I wanted to do with the cars. I didn't need them polished and Concord ready. I wanted a little mud in the tires and a little dust on the headlights. I want you to explain a little bit more the connection between cars and watches. Besides just the mechanical underpinnings, what's the psychological motivator there? What makes these things both top of mind for the kind of person that collects either? I don't think I know a single person who's obsessed with cars who is not equally interested in watches and probably vice versa. It first and foremost came from my experience with my dad, who I quite liked. I don't have a dad hating story. I have a dad <laughs> loving story. And my dad was someone who was a sign painter, an artist, graphic designer. He loved well-designed things. He liked well-crafted things. And he also shot competition skeet and trap. So it was weird. Like that group of men that he was navigating not only loved Belgian handmade 
shotguns that were used for breaking targets and that was about it but these guys always had some extraordinary watch on their wrist and they drove a great car and i guess there was this common thread of beautifully mechanically constructed things they also i would say more with cars and watches would often mark great moments in their life. My father was very vocal in the dialogue of what that was. Like when his business got very successful, he marked it with a wristwatch. When he bought the latest Chevy CJ pickup, we kind of just celebrated that purchase. My dad loved British sports cars. And when he got married, he sold the 59 Triumph TR3A that he drove around. And the ad in the paper was, I'm selling my left arm. And I just do have to interject that my dad had a 59 Triumph TRA. Really? That's the car I learned to drive on. I was about six years old and all I could do was steer because he had to work the pedals. But that TR3... What color was it? It was white with a black interior. It's so funny. My dad was black, red interior with a white tanno cover. Oh, fun. There were seven guys in his car club that all owed Triumphs all TR3s. And they called themselves the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> Everyone picked a name for the car. My dad's was grumpy. And my dad illustrated in like one eighth scale, just near where you would pull out the little hammer that knocked off the hubs, each dwarf, which was so amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. But it was just a culture, I think, of specific time that thankfully I'm old enough to remember that put a lot of emotional weight and energy in the love of that object, in the care of that object. And it was not about just getting from A to Z. It was about a full lifestyle immersion, what that car said of who you are, what you represented, and how you wanted the world to see. Well, you certainly tell those stories in the book. I'm flipping through it and looking at the broad swath uh, across an automotive landscape that goes across all decades and across all countries and species. I mean, some of them are no brainers You've got Bruce Meyer, Shelby Cobra, or Bizzarini A3C. Those are great cars and linchpins in any collection, except his, because he's got even greater cars, some would argue. Really magnificent cars. But you've got others that are pretty much out of left field. One page shows the mortal or non-mortal remains of an 85 Honda Accord or a 93 Volvo station wagon. I mean, these are pretty quotidian vehicles, but the stories are anything but uninteresting. I think it's interesting when you mention someone like Bruce Meyer or even Jay Leno that have prolific collections. But when you really put the screws to these guys, when you really sit across the table from them and you say, almost in that kind of burning house question, what are the cars you walk away with? And then you get the Roadmaster from Leno or you get that number one Shelby from Bruce. That to me is what was the motivation of the book. Because it would have been too easy to just fill a book with priceless hedge fund or even hedge fund Ferraris. Right, right, right. One could look at your car, but when you talk about your car one-on-one and the attention to detail and the passion that went into the construction of this and the hardship and the thoughtfulness, that for me was the barometer for getting cars in the book. The problem with a project like this is that you miss a thousand stories. And it also is more difficult for Carr because I photographed this book. I dug into my photographic skill set to do that. Boy, that's a lot tougher than photographing watches. It's hard and it's more complicated to get to them. The choreography is more complicated. So we had to really fine tune what the edit was. And I think when I talked to my publisher, I said, here's the deal. This edit is my edit. This edit is my personal favorite. So it's not the quintessential perfect 
competitive cars like that, you could punch a lot of holes in. These are the cars that I like full stop. At least that way, we were hoped to beat away the critics of what I missed, which admittedly, I missed a lot. You say that, but that's actually not true. I see this as a pretty ecumenical assortment of cars. It's like the village people of car books. You've got <laughs> Porsches, you got lots of Italians, some big American iron, plenty of Jags and Rovers. Some of this stuff looks like it ought to be sent to the junkyard. Other pieces are remarkably pristine. you got quite a cornucopia of cars there, so I think it speaks to your breadth of interest and obviously the breadth of stories that go with each and every single one of them. The one that really fascinated me was the 1970 Three Mirage, which was actually built on a Maserati chassis. Yeah, by Peter Calico, who I met at Villa Desta. And when I was allowed into the kind of bat cave, the inner sanctum of his cars, I just was like, holy cannoli, like this is crazy. And I had kind of the pick of the litter. But when he said that he actually built the car of his dreams in the mid to late 1970s. And I saw that car and he went through the whole dialogue of what that was. And there was two left out of a five prototype production. I just was like, holy cow. And he had the buck. It was great to see. I mean, really, for no other reason, our listening audience should get this book just to be able to see some of these incredible rarities and hear the stories that you were told. I mean, really, really engaging. There was another weirdo in there. I thought I'd seen everything. And all of a sudden, oh, well, yeah, okay, Ferrari 365, GT 2 plus 2. A lot of people call it the Queen Mary. It was sort of like the last big grand Ferrari front engine V12 GT. Then I'm looking at this thing and I realize, oh, Matt, you got a pretty weird example here. It's got no bumpers and those headlights are completely wrong. And wait a minute, it doesn't even have a Ferrari engine. It's got a Jag V12. <laughs> this guy was awesome. A Jag V12 that actually he made look like a Ferrari V12 engine you know, a carbureted V12 engine. And that came out of this idea of the personality of Alex. Alexander Kraft is a very interesting character. He really customizes or quote unquote bespokes pretty much everything in his life. If it's not a barn or a house or a suiting, or in this case, his cars, he really puts his impression of what he wants these cars to look like. He's not precious about their originality. He wants them to be a reflection of who he is. You have some guys that want everything stock and original, and then some guys want these resto mods, and craft is somewhere in between. And I just thought, again, it's the story that is the driver. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Matthew Haranek. Give us an example of a couple of the most interesting people and cars and stories in the book. You got some favorites? There's this one guy named Esteban Yorita who I met through my brother who designs cars at Tesla. And he's a machinist at Tesla. Sure, you got all these MIT guys on the philosophical design end of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, it takes real guys with skills to build these things. And my brother is one of them. And Esteban was basically was like an L.A. gangbanger. He was all tatted out and scarred up and dickied out. But he's, in my brother's opinion, the best machinist he's ever met in his life. And he had this Chevy Impala that every piece of chrome was hand tool. That's a 61 Chevy Impala in your book? Yeah. 
everything was hand tooled and then chromed and this narrative and this story that went into this car. I mean, for me, lowrider culture was something I was always thought was so cool and so foreign yet so interesting. And then you had my uncle who loved Chevy Impalas in their purest form. So I thought that was a very cool amalgamation of how something becomes deeply personal. This friend of mine named Paolo Tumarelli, who's a professor of design and he lectures about the culture of design, mostly about boats and cars. And you know, he loves the Fiat Panda. The Jujero designed epically utilitarian sheet metal framed car that transported Europe in a post-World War culture. I learned to fall in love with those things to the point where one drunken night with him in Lago de Garda, we went through the local penny saver of Italy and I bought an 82 Panda. We realized they were sister cars. He had the sister car of that car. His built in Sicily, mine built in Milan. And I don't know, I just felt like that the connectivity and the cultural crossover and the intimacy of why people fall in love with cars, it could be a Rod Emery interpretation of a Porsche to this crazy little Italian 2000 euro car. You get no argument from me. I mean, it's sometimes the most average and service-minded cars are really the most important and beautiful and special. I mean, I've got a little Fiat 500 that I just think is the greatest thing in the world in terms of purity of design, in terms of its being an essential, honest, classic, eternal design. The VW Bug, I mean, any of these cars. And the Panda, of course, never made its way to America. So most of our listeners don't know how wonderful that is and what it really represents Europe. I drove 1,800 kilometers reluctantly with my wife from Lago de Garda to Bordeaux, France. And that, for those who don't understand the terrain, goes through mountains and hills and beaches and lowlands. And this car is 30 horsepower. And you learn a couple things about a marriage on a road trip like that. You're driving a car that's too hot and too loud to be anything but silent and to be comfortable in one silence. And the faith you have in each other that even when you realize the fuel lines are clogged, that you will make it to a mechanic eventually. <laughs> partnerships, it's all about partnerships. Give us a couple other favorites that stand out for you. I know Porsches are a big thing, and Porsches are a big thing for you, Matt. Maybe it's time to beat that drum a little bit. Well, both of these books, The Bannerness Car and Bannerness Watch, started with a selfish, intimate story, like a legitimately honest point of view about the thing. And the watch book was about my dad's watch. And then I was always a Porsche fan. And I was always a 911 fan. And I had a poster of a navy blue 911 whale tail turbo when I was in high school in my room. And that was my fantasy thing. I mean, come on, I was a kid of the 80s. That was the car. So when I met Yolanda, she had a boyfriend in San Francisco that she convinced to buy this 911 Targa. And fast forward, they maintained them friendship. We became friends. And Yolanda and I borrowed his car drove to Palm Springs and got married in it. And then, of course, the car had to go back to him. And then a few years later, we were working on some ridiculous business deal about me advising him on something. And he said, well, what do you want for the deal? And I said, well, I don't want any money. I just want that car. And he was like, you mean that crappy 911 that's decaying in the driveway of my house in San Francisco with like a leaky roof and a bad carburetor and I said, yeah, that's the car I want. And then I ended up getting that car and slowly bringing it back to life. And, you know, I, I will never part with that car. There's just too much passion, history and events that happened in that thing. People say to me right now, like, what is your fantasy car to own? Okay, sure. 
there's a few that I could talk about, like a Ferrari Spider or even a 308 or a Jaguar E-Type. But the reality is I own my fantasy car. I own the car that I had a poster of in my room, which is that 911 Targa. My dad always said, you always dance with the girl you go to the prom with. That was my first love. I'm sure I will cycle through a bunch more cars, but that's the one that really meant the most to me. The watch book, you kind of run across a lot of Rolex owners that have similar stories, just for whatever the entry point is for that. Accessible, reliable. And you run across Porsche owners in the same way. My publisher felt that there were too many Rolexes in the first book and too many Porsches in the second book, but that's just the way it is. Well, I guess some of us would argue there can never be too many Rolexes or too many Porsches, but the good news is they're not exclusive to everything else and you could add more things to the mix. But man, a garage without a Porsche is a very, very lonely garage indeed. You know, Robert, I keep that Porsche in a very cold, unheated, uncontrolled environment in upstate New York with a trickle charge in. And I always put a little like fuel supplement in the winter and come the first warm spring day, I peel the cover off that car, unplug the trickle charge, and that damn thing starts up and roars and drives like it probably came out of the factory. And there's something to be said about vintage car ownership when you own something like that. Looking through this book, Matt, there are some, I'm going to call it side trips that you take. You've got some sections on things that look like they were special to you. You do a couple of Concours events, the Hilton Head and the Bridge. And then you also dig into some archives of both the Henry Ford archive and the Alfa Romeo Fiat archive. Tell us about those. What kind of got that going? For me, there was a very interesting sociodemographic, uh, socioeconomic conversation there, which was like Ford got the world, at least in the U.S., mobile. He created this object that got people mechanized and got people from A to Z and created this culture of exploration and movement. That was the same for me for Fiat, because I was a kid in the 80s who was like looking to Europe. My mother's Italian. I went to school there and I was just seeing Fiats everywhere. And in a post-World War II culture, Fiat really was the brand for me that created a mobile culture from little grandmom to guys that loved F1. And I just felt like that was a very interesting dialogue for the European experience and the American experience. More so than, let's say, for me, Peugeot. I mean, I don't know what other brand besides Fiat touched a culture outside of the United States with so much mobility. Even the Volkswagen didn't have that kind of reach in Italy and throughout Europe. Fiat was really the one. Throughout Europe, down to Cuba, to those crazy little Polish made, whatever the riff on the 500 was, that little more geometric version of that car. So that to me was a very important, and I was allowed to get into those archives which was really interesting. So Fiat opened their doors in Turin to the Heritage Collection, which was like kid in the candy store. Like that was insane to figure out how to edit that. And then Ford was really generous with, and I grew up with a dad who, again, used to pinstripe Model A's and Model T's. I was around those cars a lot growing up. And then when I went to Europe, there was Fiat everywhere, of every shape, form, and configuration. So and that comes from a very personal point of view. I'm probably not that far off, historically speaking, but I really couldn't think of another car badge that had the impact. And then again, I nodded to Tesla because then you have this next American chassis ground up construction of a car company that again is changing the way we look at how people get around. 
But I think also, Robert, when you think about the individual stories, mortal, immortal, and otherwise, like I love the Ralph Lauren story. Again, I was given access to anything I wanted to photograph, but there was something about that Mercedes and about how, when I spoke to his kids, when I spoke to Andrew Lauren, when I said, what is the car that you most remember and connect to your father? It was that Mercedes. And the fact that he bought that car with an investment from an outside investor who wanted to invest in his business to scale his business. And he ran out and bought a car because that was the symbol of what that business was. That was the guy going out and buying his first Rolex. Yeah. And I think that those stories really resonated with me and inspired me because maybe I, in some way, hope to identify with those kind of characters. But I think that there's a little bit of history there's a lot of passion, and then there's a lot of selfish wish list in this book. Well, hardly selfish, but in terms of wish list, let me ask you this. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, were there some personalities and some automobiles you would like to have gotten in but didn't have an opportunity to? There were a lot of people that I just couldn't get to physically because I was traveling around with this 30 by 30 black ripstop nylon backdrop that was in a giant as we call in the Northeast, like a kind of hockey bag duffel with light stands. And at the end of a year and a half of running around the world with this thing, as much as I could, I really just wanted to pour kerosene on it and burn it. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing you didn't do it until you got done with the last car in the book, which happens to be owned by a friend and obviously well-known automotive journalist, Ken Gross. I see you put his 32 Ford Roadster in there as the very last car. What a pretty car that is. Well, I love Ken's story. And I think the American hot rod dialogue was an important one for the book. And his example is terrific. And Ken, you know, I met at Hilton Head, which was a very intimate car concourse for me, was the most mom and pop car concourse I've ever gone to with such an incredible club day with very intimate, passionate car owners. And I had the opportunity to meet Ken and just had a very quick friendship with him. And he contributed to William Brown Magazine with some very early car content. And to have the journey of his car in the book was terrific. And the punchline of his story is great too, which I'm not going to give online. You got to buy the book to figure that out. But it meant a lot because I do think as much as I leaned into the European experience, the American hot rod to muscle car dialogue is still very relevant to how I grew up and how I looked at things with four wheels. We'll be back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. I know we are here to talk about cars, but I do want to ask you a few other areas of your expertise, Matt. You are not unknown to be an expert mixologist, so I'm just going to throw it at you. How do you make a proper martini? Okay, so there's a character named Alessandro Palazzi that is the head bar manager at the Duke's Bar in London. What 
I like about what he does and what I've incorporated in my life, which is very helpful because it gets you from A to Z as quickly as possible. And you kind of want to get to your cocktail with as much speed as possible. And this does not require a lot of equipment. It doesn't require spinning and turning and calculating time and ice dilution. He taught me to keep all the spirits in the freezer. Correction, the vermouth is in the fridge. The gin is in the freezer. And we're talking gin here. We're not talking vodka. Well, I am glad you made that very critical distinction because if it were vodka, it wouldn't be a martini at all, would it? Exactly. And the world should understand that more clearly, as well as a certain generation, the one behind us. So I keep my glasses in the freezer and I keep my gin in the freezer. I take the glass out of the freezer. I give it a wash of vermouth and I use French vermouth only. And my white vermouth, in this case, Noe Pratt, I like London dry. And it just comes out with the most perfect viscosity and temperature out of the freezer. And then I will use most of the time a twist of lemon over an olive. And then that's it. And that is like a 30 second ordeal, which is kind of terrific when you just want to get out of the gate, as they say. You're not going to believe this. And I swear it's true. And you've never been to my house. But if you open my refrigerator, you'd see some French vermouth. If you open my freezer, you'd see London dry gin and a glass in there with my initials on it. And that's exactly how it's done. Which means do not touch my glass. <laughs> I don't like in many aspects of culture. I want to kind of erase the kind of preciousness. I like ritual, but I don't like preciousness. I love Manhattans and Honestly, I make Manhattans the way my uncles made Manhattans in upstate New York. I have changed the rye, where they would have used Seagram's or some Canadian rye, but they always used ice in a shaker. They shook the Manhattans and got them icy, cold, and cloudy and poured them in the glass. And by the time they got to the first sip, they were clear and perfect and cold. And I'm not going to sit there stirring a Manhattan. Like, I just can't be bothered. And I think that, you know, I love the idea of rituals and rules and all this stuff, but I think those are ideally meant to be broken for one's own taste. And the reality is all this stuff is so personal. Why not just do what's right for you? And if you like briny olives and you like it dirty, God bless you. I like a peel of lemon and we're done. Matt, you alluded before to how you are actually a very happy man and there's nothing better than contentment. And that poster car, your Porsche Targa, is in fact in your garage, so you want for nothing. But all that being said, I always like to ask our guests at the last minute, if you could have the keys to a couple of other cars, what do you think it'll be? I think I would love a Ferrari Dino. I would love a Dino for many aspects. I think I would love to own a Ferrari. I would like to own a small Ferrari. I would like to own one that has those lines and that delicacy with an off-branded badge that seems a little bit under the radar. I like the story behind the Dino. I had the opportunity to buy one of those in the early 90s for like 35,000 bucks. And I wish I did. Of course, I didn't have 30. That's the story, right? You didn't have 35,000 bucks. But I would definitely love a Dino. And I definitely would love an E-Type, a six-cylinder, ideally. Those are two cars. When I see an E-Type driving down the highway, my heart races a little faster. My eyes dilate. I think that's the reaction Enzo Ferrari had when he saw the first one, because he called it the most beautiful car in the world. <laughs> Yolanda and I had the pleasure of being the Le Mans Classic not too long ago. And she went out, I was with someone having a chat and she went out to watch the start of the E-Types. And we had just dropped our daughter off at a friend's house in France that we weren't going to see for a while. And Yolanda came back and she was very emotional and very teary-eyed. And I was like, Yolanda, don't worry. Like, we're going to see Clara soon. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, why? I don't understand. Like, you know, this is her growing and becoming the person she should be. And she's like, I'm not crying about that. 
I'm crying about how beautiful those E-types are. <laughs> and I said, right there, I know I married the right woman. Tell us, where can our listeners get a copy of your book, A Man in His Car? Now, ideally, you can find A Man in His Car at your favorite local bookstore. Of course, if you have to indulge for convenience to the online Amazon Barnes & Noble world, it's there. I strongly urge you find your local yokel, but if not, it's out there. In order for them to do that, I want to spell your last name, Matt. H-R-A-N-E-K. And where else can people follow you, Matt? So on Instagram, I am at WM Brown Project which is, well, the magazine is called William Brown, W.M. Brown. You could find the magazine online and also in Los Angeles, for example, at a lot of retail. There's a website, the William Brown Project, which has a list of all our stockists where you can find the magazine. There's a big car dialogue, watch dialogue, and total overarching lifestyle dialogue on the Instagram account, which is at W.M. Brown project. Join us there. Definitely worth checking out and certainly elevates the men's lifestyle experience to something that's as well-rounded, refined, and cultured as it is casual in its own way. Not taking itself so seriously that it really just strikes the perfect note. It's what a gentleman really should be. Or in this case, a man in his car. Thanks, Robert. I mean, this is so much fun. I look forward to seeing you in person and actually seeing that freezer full of London Drive one of these days. Thanks to Matthew Haranek, author of A Man and His Gar, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time when we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.